Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 5th. Today, Britain's upcoming election, the price of wrongful imprisonment, and the House proceeds with articles of impeachment. The Brits actually don't like having elections every every year. But the frequency of elections in the last couple of years, David Cameron left, Theresa May came in, Theresa May then staged an election, they kicked Theresa May out. Boris comes in, then Boris ends Parliament, Parliament ends itself, then they go to another election. So it, it would be fair to say they're a little tired of elections, uh, as they're tired of Brexit, but they're a tough people, and they are they're going to go for one more. This is William Booth. He is the Post Bureau Chief in London, where people are headed to the polls next Thursday to vote for their new government. There's a general election happening now, a snap election, because Boris and the parliament uh, couldn't get anywhere with anything because Boris had lost his majority in parliament. So they had a, a hung parliament, a stuck parliament. And so the various sides fought but they decided to uh, shut down Parliament and go to early elections. So that's why we have a general election now. So who is running in this election? Well, Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party is running. His main opponent is Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And they are in, I guess you'd call it second place. And then there's some other independents and the Liberal Democrats and some other folks. But it's really, it's become more and more each week a head-to-head of Boris Johnson v. Jeremy Corbyn, Conservatives versus Labour. And is there a real possibility that Boris Johnson won't win? Well, Jeremy Corbyn thinks this, and his labor activists hope to think this. It looked like more of a possibility before the election started. Right now, it's pretty much looking like Boris Johnson's race to lose, though the big question here is whether he takes a big majority and he can really run the government, or whether they stumble and they have a hung parliament or just a little squeaky, small, razor-thin majority in parliament, which wouldn't be good for him. It makes governments unstable. So clearly, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been a very polarizing figure. I think a lot of people really love him because they love his candor and the way that he's outspoken and can kind of be a performer and also his hair. Um, But a lot of people don't like him because they think that he's maybe not a responsible prime minister or not a rigorous thinker or an actual person who can get things done. So I'm wondering for Jeremy Corbyn, his biggest opponent, what is his kind of character on the political stage? Well, Jeremy Corbyn has been demonized for years by the sort of the pro-conservative, the, the right-wing 
press, the tabloids, as kind of comrade Corbin, a wild-eyed, loony, uh, far-lefty, Trotskyite. Uh, and, 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 and Corbin has fed that furnace by appearing on, you know, Iranian TV and supporting Hamas and all these other things. So, so it's a kind of a fair hit. So he's seen as not a leftist but more of a communist by people who don't like him. And that's the rap on Corbin, even though the ideas he promotes are very popular. And when you watch him speak, he's very grandfatherly. He's a nice 70-year-old guy who rides his bicycle and prefers to eat vegetarian meals. He's he's a little bland and, and a nice fellow. So the more Corbin campaigns, the, the more people usually tend to like him. But he's But he's kind of demonized in the press here. He's not well-liked by the British uh, media. So what are the key issues that people are going to be voting on as they come into this election? Well, Boris's, Boris Johnson's big thing is his slogan is get, get Brexit, Brexit done. done and unleash the potential of the whole United Kingdom. And if that sounds to you like a tooth extraction or an uncomfortable <laughs> uh, probe, uh, you would be exactly right. And that's, I think, how voters see it here. We can leave the EU as one UK whole and entire and perfect as we promised. On day one of the new parliament in December, we will start getting our deal through so we can get Brexit done in January and unleash this country's potential. I hope very much that you will support us. He's very focused on uh, get this thing done. And once we get it done, we will unleash the the genius of the the British people and the economy and we'll soar to, to great heights. The Conservative Party here is often uh, blamed uh, Labour for saying, well, they spend too much money and they're taxing spenders. But Boris Johnson himself has now found the, the magical money tree. Last election, we were told by your predecessor, Mr Johnson, that there was no magic money tree. Have you found a magic money tree, Mr Johnson? And have you found perhaps more than one of them, Mr Corbyn? No, we're, we're, we're operating... Money forest he's got. Uh, <laughs> and is promising all sorts of things uh, for, for infrastructure and police and hospitals. But if Jeremy Corbyn were to win, what is his stance on Brexit? Like, is he running on, never mind, we're just not going to have Brexit anymore? Or what, what does he say that he, how does he say that he'll navigate Brexit if, if he were to become prime minister? Okay, so I'm going to dodge that question for one second just to explain what what Corbyn, what Jeremy Corbyn would like to do through his manifesto, what the party would like to do, is a pretty radical transformation of the British economy. No one can deny the thirst for real change in Britain. I believe that was a driving force behind the EU referendum vote in 2016. He wants to renationalize mail, rail, water, and electricity, give free internet to everybody, and spend lots of money on, on people and put the workers more in charge. Okay, so that would be a big change, and that's what he's selling. In an election offering a once-in-a-generation chance for real change, we can end privatization and rescue our national health service. We can get Brexit sorted and bring our country together. We can tackle the climate emergency that threatens us all. And we can rewrite the rules of our economy to work for the many, not the few. 
Okay, now to the boring bit. Okay, so if Jeremy Corbyn and Labour wins Brexit, what they've said is they will go quick as a bunny over to Brussels and they will renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. They will renegotiate the Brexit deal with the wily Europeans. They will give the Europeans more what they want than what Boris gave them. And then they will come back to Britain with that deal within three months, and they will have a second referendum where the poor British voters will have to decide whether they like Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Corbyn's uh, Brexit deal or they think, nah, I don't know what this fever dream was over the last four years. Let's just stay in Europe. That sounds great to me, which, you know, could it's feasible. Anything's feasible here. That could actually, if Labour won, which I don't think they will, I mean, that could happen. They would negotiate a very soft Brexit. They'd come back. They'd offer the two. And it's possible that Brits would stand up and vote and say, forget it. We just want to stay. So then is this basically just a Brexit election? Or are there also other things that people are thinking about and voting on as they're going into this? Excellent question, because it's not really a Brexit election. Johnson would like it to be just a Brexit election, like, let's get it done, let's get the tooth extracted. But there's lots of discussion about what they want to do with their very beloved National Health Service and what they want to do with uh, public investment and ownership and where the country should be going after this boring bit is is over. So it is kind of about other things. And the third parties are certainly stressing that. They're saying that enough with Brexit, let's move on to all this other stuff like like climate and the overheating of the planet and how our kids are educated and all these other things. And and there's pent up desire for talks about that. They just have this other thing in the way, the B word. So they're trying to work themselves through that one. Bill, thank you so much. Anytime. I love doing it. William Booth is the London Bureau Chief for The Post. men had 36 years of their life stolen from them. There's no way to ever repair the damage done or the trauma imposed upon these men for almost four decades. Last week in Maryland, three men were released from prison after serving 36 years for a murder they didn't commit. Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart were exonerated after evidence proved their innocence. This is the day that the Lord has made. I hate to put it like this, we went through hell. I sat on my bunk when I got the information, and I cried. These three men are among the latest people to be freed from prison after wrongful convictions. But what happens after their release? What are they entitled to as restitution? Clarence Shipley, he's 48 years old. He also went to prison around age 20. November the 3rd, I was at a, a friend house, girlfriend house at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Probably like 3 in the morning, they okay. came over there knocking on the door. And just like the police just left there saying that you killed Kevin. Said I didn't kill nobody. So mm-hmm. we went to the police station and okay. they arrested me for that murder. He was in prison for 27 years, which is almost... 10,000 days. He is from Baltimore. He is black. Ovita Wiggins covers Maryland politics for The Post. Clarence told her his story of how he was sent to prison for murder, even though he was innocent. 
They talked in his home by a nearby fountain. And so you went down to the police Almost, station? Yes. During the interrogation, I told them where I was at mm-hmm. at the time. He said he didn't believe me. The detective? Yes. Yeah. He said I was lying. Yeah. Uh, he never followed up, no investigation. Well, I told him I was at. It was later determined that the man who was killed, Kevin Smith, his brother had actually set him up to be robbed by another man, and the the robbery went wrong, and his brother ended up being killed. The brother of the deceased actually pinned the murder on Clarence Shipley. Ovita says that there were holes in Clarence's original trial. There was information, evidence that was not presented at trial. One of the witnesses later admitted to lying at trial. I was sentenced to die in that prison. It took years and years for it to be found out that he was innocent. It only took two days for the jury to convict him. Clarence is one of five men in Maryland who were recently exonerated after being falsely imprisoned for years and who are finally receiving financial compensation from the state. We're talking about five men who were incarcerated for over 120 years collectively. And they had been petitioning the state for compensation for up to 20 months, like the earliest person had asked for compensation 20 months ago and had not heard anything from the state at all. And so they had decided to reach out to the media to try and put additional pressure on the state to compensate these men. It worked. The five men were awarded about $9 million total. But the idea of how these men were convicted for crimes they didn't commit is emblematic of a larger issue in the justice system. What we see happening in Maryland is happening in states all across the the country. And during my reporting, I found that there were close to 2,500 people who were released from prison who were exonerated between 1989 and 2018. And a third of those happened between 2014 and 2018. So we're seeing a large number of people who are being released from prison and with the acknowledgement that they did not commit the crimes or the acknowledgement that their trials were faulty. There was something wrong with their case. The data shows that African-Americans are disproportionately represented, that they're seven times more likely than whites to be in that group of exonerees. In total, state and municipal governments have paid out $2.2 billion to exonerees since 1989. But there's still a question of how much people are supposed to get and when, like in the cases of these five men in Maryland. So each man would actually receive $78,916 for each year they were incarcerated. So these were five men who had previously been imprisoned And then they were exonerated. How were they exonerated? All of the men had tried to appeal their convictions but were unsuccessful. Each of the men were working with the Innocence Project and other organizations, and their attorneys were able to go to the state prosecutor's office and were able to present new evidence in most cases that showed that they had not committed those crimes. 
So once it was decided that that these men were going to be released, I would imagine that it would just be assumed that they would get money for the fact that they spent years and years in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. That's what one person would think, that they would just automatically get the money. And Maryland is one of 35 states that actually allow an exoneree to get money. But because of some problems with the legislature never set a standard for how much the person is supposed to get. And it was up to the State Board of Public Works to decide how much a person is supposed to get. But they were waiting for the legislature to guide them on how much the person should receive. And so they just decided not to take up these cases. So these people were just left in limbo all this time. And Maryland has like basically lagged behind other states. Other states actually have a set figure for how much a person is supposed to receive. But in Maryland, that wasn't the case. And so you had these men, they would get out of prison. Some would ask for compensation. Others would not. You would actually have to petition the state board for compensation. And some people just never even ask for it because Maryland wasn't giving the money up. The fact that, you know, you had the state legislature saying, well, it's not up to us to decide how much money. And then you have the Board of Public Works saying, well, it's not up to us to decide how much money. And then they just get to award no money. That's crazy. It's 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 insane, really. When you think about the fact that these are people who were treated unfairly, they come out, they're supposed to rebuild their lives. Most who come out have nothing. Some have no place to stay. One person who, one of the five men, he actually was homeless. You had others who had family, but their families are still in the situation that they were in prior to them being incarcerated. And, you know, they they have nothing. And the state is basically saying, you know, we've given you your freedom back. Go on. So tell me about Clarence Shipley, Jr., Clearly, that that was a process that took years and years to get all of that information, to make it clear to a judge that he had been wrongfully convicted. What was it like for Clarence Shipley during those years when he was in prison, knowing that he was there for something that he didn't do? During the time that he was incarcerated, he said that he he just continued to maintain his innocence. I remember just telling the judge that I was innocent. I wasn't, you know, I'm not responsible for this. There were times when he sort of lost his faith, lost all hope, but knew that he was innocent. He, He talked about the fact that, you know, he knew that he could not die in prison. I didn't want to die there. He was given a life sentence, and he knew that based on that sentence, he would die in prison if he was not able to convince the prosecutors of his innocence. What was it like for his family while he was in prison? That's one thing that he had in his corner. They they were supportive. Mm-hmm. They was visiting me, coming to uh, the family days that they had for us there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were supportive. His family was always there, he said. And Clarence had two sons, and one passed away while he was in prison, The son was 12 at the time. He died in a house fire. And so then I imagine that Clarence was never able to have any significant relationship with with that son. That's right. He had no significant relationship with either of his two children. But yet his family, as I said earlier, was a great source of support for him. His mother and his sister, who all believed in his innocence. 
What was his reaction when he found out that he was going to be released and that people finally believed him that he hadn't done this murder? When he found out that the detective believed him and told him that he was going to take his case to the Innocence Project, he just described it as... Like some bricks off my shoulder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very happy. Um, I was... I was riding high. From that point, I mean, it was like blessings after blessings just Mm -hmm. kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. He also held no anger towards any of the people involved in his case. You got to stay positive. It's it's no need to get angry. It's it's not going to do you no good. He talked about forgiving everyone from the prosecutors to the judge to the witnesses, to the police, anyone who had a role in his incarceration. He talked about having to forgive them. And he was just excited to be able to get home to his family. And when I got outside to hug my family, uh, you know, because I haven't hugged my family in a while without something in between us. When Clarence found out that he was, in fact, going to receive the money that that was owed to him. What was his reaction? Clarence had always said from the beginning that no amount of money would be able to take away the pain of the experience. He didn't even feel as though that this would be justice in a way, but he saw it as a way of being able to help his family, as he said to me. Not only would it you know, help me, mm-hmm. help my family. I mean, my family still, you know, living in the projects, mm-hmm. still struggling. Yeah. Ovita Wiggins covers Maryland politics for The Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. On July 25th, 2019, during a phone call with a foreign leader, Trump asked for a favor to investigate a political rival. Trump's call set off a cascade of events leading to the current impeachment proceedings. In season two, The Asset shows how all roads lead to Russia and dissects how Trump tried to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. And now, one more thing. Our democracy is what is at stake. The president leaves us no choice but to act. On Thursday morning, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made it official. The House of Representatives will move forward with articles of impeachment against President Trump. The president has engaged in abuse of power, undermining our national security, and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections. His actions are in defiance of the vision of our founders and the oath of office that he takes to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Pelosi's address came shortly after President Trump posted to Twitter that if Democrats plan to impeach him, they should do it quickly. 
House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy criticized Pelosi and Democrats as acting in a purely partisan way. This morning I listened to Speaker Pelosi give us historical references. The one that she skipped was Alexander Hamilton when he wrote, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision to use the impeachment power would be driven by partisan animosity instead of real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. Today is the day that Hamilton warned us. Today, with the Speaker's announcement, she has weakened this nation. It was not new news. They always had this pre-written timeline from the day they got sworn in. We are proceeding in a manner worthy of the Constitution. We feel comfortable with all of the time that has gone into this two and a half years since the appointment of, of Mueller and all of the transpired since then. I'm not, I'm, I have confidence, humility, again, a heart full of love for America. We are doing this in the right way. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, waiting for asylum on the southern border. There are now around 2,000 people here living just at the very edge of northern Mexico on the Rio Grande. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.